0: I'm going to ask you, if you would, we're in the book of Acts, you know this, and we're coming down to the final stretch here, um, but I'm going to actually ask you to start off in the book of Matthew, if you would, Matthew 10, Uh, and you can put your finger in Acts 22 if you want. The greatest teacher to ever live, Jesus of Nazareth, said some pretty provocative things throughout his teaching ministry. Uh, They have been inspirational, in fact, the world over, even sometimes for those who are not followers of Christ, would not claim to be Christians, still find much of his teaching to be inspirational to them. For example, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You can go into almost any classroom in town and find the golden rule, as it's called, put on the walls of schools around us. Had a funny incident with this a number of years ago with our kids. Uh, Aiden, who is actually, was home, is home visiting. It's been fun to have him uh, home for about a month here. But he was retaliating against his sister for something. I don't even remember what the incident was. And so he said, dude, what are you doing? And he said, I'm doing what the Bible said. Do to others what they did to you. Like, no, 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 you got that wrong. So we had to correct that one a little bit. Or love your enemies. And do good to those who hate you. Turn the other cheek. Uh, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. Might be the most unpopular thing Jesus ever said, especially around tax time. Jesus also taught some things. As, As much as these are radically good things that he taught, he also taught some things that just sound radical. In fact, sometimes they are shocking. For example, be shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. And we go, that, that doesn't even sound Christian, right? How, how does that come out of the mouth of Jesus? What does he, he mean? We, we know that we're to be imitators of his, his character, and his likeness. We're meant to be loving and gentle, desiring peace, forgiving. But Jesus also instructed his disciples to be shrewd, that is, wise discerning, even clever. Shrewdness is a way of kind of working the angles, if you will, exercising our rights, leveraging our impact for the gospel. It's not just self-seeking, but it's doing these things for gospel impact, as we'll see. That's the context behind this. So if you're in Matthew 10, I want to introduce this idea before we get to our passage, because we're going to see it on display. I'm sending you out, sorry, this is Matthew 10, 16. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about What to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So here we can see this command to be shrewd and innocent simultaneously. This is given in the context uh, of carrying out the mission of God. This is not about tax evasion, it's not about looking for loopholes in the system for personal benefit it's about being morally pure but tactically effective for the gospel of jesus christ now we know that the apostle paul was not here at this particular instance where jesus gave this teaching but it sure seems like somebody passed it along to him or modeled it in front of him or or perhaps the holy spirit just impressed it upon him because he definitely does this throughout consistently throughout the book of acts and paul's ministry He is shrewd as a snake and innocent as a dove as he strategizes for the advancement of the gospel. Uh, As we come to the the end of the book of Acts here, we are now in the second of what are five trials that Paul goes through. These are listed on the back of your notes if you kind of care to see where we're at. We saw, if you can call it a trial last week, sort of this Jewish crowd, this mob that was after him. Now we see more of a formal trial before this supreme Jewish council here in chapter 22. And I think in this particular passage, what we see is a direct fulfillment of what Christ has previously promised. Paul was arrested for the gospel of grace. He was flogged in the synagogues. He was put on trial. And it seems to me that the Holy Spirit has certainly helped him with what to say all along the way. Uh, last week, we saw some of the things that he did to sort of uh, correct some misunderstanding. He clarified his identity, right? They had a, a case of mistaken identity there. He clarified his ministry. He claimed his civil rights. And he did all of this for the gospel that he might continue to persevere and continue to proclaim it. He, he told us he's ready to die for the name of Christ, but he's not going to die for a case of mistaken identity, or misunderstanding of his teachings. So he uses his rights to clarify things there and averts death and lives to preach another day. But today we see in this second trial where Paul uses a bit of shrewdness, cleverness, strategic maneuvering. One might say that Paul's downright crafty here. And this is what we find. So the bullet this morning, what I want you to hear is this. For the sake of the gospel, be as shrewd as serpents, as innocent as doves, Jesus taught it. Paul models it for us here. Uh, so chapter 22 verse 30, and then we'll push into 23. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked at the, straight at the Sanhedrin and said, "My brothers." I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest and Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that it was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. So we're going to start off with this here. Lots going on. First of all, Paul has this clear conscience according to what God has called him to do. And to that I would say, what a wonderful thing to be able to believe and declare that your conscience is clear according to what God has asked you to do. Our conscience is one of the many tools that God the Holy Spirit uses to move us to rightful action. Whether that action is repentance for sin, or moves us into a particular service of another, or to release some resource for the benefit of others, or propels us to be a witness for Christ, it is our conscience that oftentimes the Holy Spirit of God uses to sort of mobilize and propel us. That being said, the conscience is not infallible, is it? In fact, we can do a quick survey of Scripture and we would find that some are noted as having a weak conscience. Some have a seared conscience. Others have an uneasy conscience. That is, knowing what they ought to do, but still lacking the obedience and the follow-up. So our conscience is not an infallible tool, but it is a tool that God uses gives to us to use. And I would say whenever the Holy Spirit of God is working upon our conscience, we need to combine it with two things. One, we need to combine it with the wisdom of the people of God. And two, we need to combine it with the square edge of God's infallible word. It's a useful tool to mobilize, but it's gotta be rightly aimed, and that's how we get it aimed correctly here. Personally, I would say that there have been a couple times in my life, one in particular a number of years ago, where I was really relieved to be able to declare something like Paul was saying here, that my conscience is clear. It was a difficult season in terms of relationships and leadership, and I I was able at that time to be able to say, by the grace of God, my conscience is clear about what I have done. Not that my actions are perfect, not that my heart was infallible or, or faultless, but I hadn't left any known act of obedience undone. And it was a great relief to be able to say, God, before you, my conscience is clear. If there's something else you would show me, show me. But this is where I am. And that really held me together through a difficult season. The prophet Isaiah, in fact, this was the passage of Scripture that God used to minister to me. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. He had a similar occasion. And this is how, how uh, he spoke about this. The Sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears and I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It's the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. These are the words of the prophet Isaiah, given a very difficult task to go to God's people, Israel, and say, in your idolatry and in your rebellion, you will be judged. The nation will fall and you will be carried out as exiles. That's a tough message. But he was faithful to give it in spite of its unpopularity. So Paul's conscience is clear here about the obedience that he has performed according to God's calling and in regards to taking the gospel to the Gentiles, However, he is absolutely bothered by the hypocrisy that he sees right in front of him. This is our second point. Paul exposes the hypocrisy of his treatment. Looking straight at the Sanhedrin, he said, My brothers, I fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth And then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there and judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Well, I think Paul's objection here is probably best explained by a proper understanding of his name calling. I thought at first we might do this sort of as an interactive exercise, but then I thought better of it because we might have to have a confessional in the service too. But let me me ask you this. Probably everybody in the room, you kind of have your go-to put down, right? You've got your favorite. Let me put you in a scenario. You're leaving church today. You're driving down the road. You're driving down University Avenue, and a car pulls out, a Chrysler, of course, a Chrysler with bumper stickers that say, I love cats, (laughs) happiness is feline good. They pull out in front of you, cut you off. Of course, that's what the Chrysler would do. And to this cat-loving Chrysler, you say, okay, so just keep that to yourself, right? We're in church, so just keep it to yourself. But you have your go-to, you have your go-to. Jesus, his go-to for such an incident, or especially with the Pharisees was, do you know it, can you think of it? You, well that was one, we'll get to that one, you're ahead of me, too early. Overachiever right there, Scott. You brood of vipers brood of vipers. Or you whitewashed tomb. A little different than Paul's language here. And what Jesus is getting at is sort of the hypocrisy as well. It's another way. It's a way of saying you have this ornate, newly painted, minty, fresh veneer on the outside, but inside you're nothing but death and rot. Whitewashed tomb. Exposing the hypocrisy. And Paul's got one kind of like it. He goes with whitewashed wall, still exposing the hypocrisy. You've got your veneer up, minty fresh on the outside, but the inside integrity does not match your outside veneer. You hypocrite. Uh, Then Paul sort of goes on here. Uh, they kind of rebuke him a little bit, where he says, how dare you insult God's high priest? And Paul says, brothers, I didn't know it was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. This particular quotation of Paul's comes from the Mosaic law. This is back in Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, where it says, do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. I can't help but to think, and I could be projecting some of Eric on Paul, always a risk, but I can't help but to think if he thought, oh good, I got away with one there. (laughs) I was able to tell him what I thought, but I didn't even know it was him, so it's not like a high-handed sin here. I don't know. But that brings us to our third point. Ultimately, Paul respected the position of the high priest, even though he did not respect the person. And this isn't Paul's Uh, sort of his own personal tactic. Again, this is the command of God coming from the Mosaic Law in Exodus 22. And friends, there's a lot of wisdom here, not just in Paul's action, but in God's instruction. God actually gives us instruction in this way to act shrewdly. God himself, in fact, is shrewd and a master tactician. Uh, Consider, for example, as we think about the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, how often God has used even faithless leaders to propel his mission as faithful people have the right posture towards them. It happens again and again throughout the Old Testament. We'll start with Pharaoh, who calls Joseph up out of the dungeon to interpret his dreams eventually elevates him to second-in-command, ultimately securing a refuge for Israel and for his family. Then we move to the beginning of Exodus, and we get another pharaoh in the ominous words who knew not Joseph. And amazingly, but who would come into his home? A little baby in a basket, right? To be raised, educated, and equipped to ultimately become the one who rescues and delivers Uh, Israel from Egypt's grip. Or Nebuchadnezzar, who is the one who besieged Jerusalem but handpicks Daniel for service. Or Darius, or Cyrus, the Persian who conquers Babylon and ends up sending God's captive people home to worship. None of these figures in authority were people of faith, but God used them to bless the faithful. God has a way of using faithless people to propel the God, the cause of the faithful who steadily and faithfully carry out God's mission. That means that we can respect the position even if we don't respect the person occupying it. Because God has a way of preserving his faithful servants. Let me bring it home in your life. We can go to your boss. Your boss who is, as far as you go, whitewashed wall. That's a new one. Thank you for that. That's my boss. Sparkling exterior, rotten inside. Or your CO, who is an empty, albeit decorated shirt. Or your supervisor, nothing more than a self-serving sinner. You can respect the position, if not the person, and be assured that God has a way of preserving his faithful servant. I love Proverbs 21.1, which says this, In the Lord's hand, the king's heart, is a stream of water that he channels toward all who please him. As you're going around town right now, you can see where everybody is channeling their streams of water, right, with the drainage. Let it turn your heart to the way that God does this, even with the kings and rulers and authority. So the, the encouragement here, I think, Christian, is this. Even in secular employment, even in whatever station you find yourself in, you ought to be the most faithful servant, the most faithful employee, that your employer could not possibly be without you. That is your task of shrewdness where God has placed you. All right, we move to one more situation here with Paul. And I'm going to tell you, here's where Paul gets downright (laughs) shrewd. Again, for the sake of the gospel and for its continued proclamation, Paul finds a way to essentially change the venue of his trial. So recognizing justice was impossible in this court with the Sanhedrin, he shrewdly exposed this internal conflict that was going on in order to get a change of venue. Uh, So we'll look at verse 6 here. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So this again is a shrewd, crafty mood Uh, move by the Apostle Paul, who basically sees uh, this tension in between these two groups here and teases it out to get the pressure off of him. He gets them to sort of fight among themselves to push his case. I was thinking about this, and it reminded me of a time uh, at Western Seminary where I got my master's degree. I'm working on my doctorate there still. My favorite class that I took there was called Integrating Theology into Ministry, and it was taught by two professors, Gary Brashears and Art Azurdia. And these guys who worked together for a number of years had a couple key theological differences. And we knew what they were because we've had these guys for years. And so at lunchtime, we would sort of connive how we could get them to sort of argue among themselves. So we'd come back and ask a question and just tee them off and sit back with delight watching them go at it. So that's as rowdy as seminary students get right there. (laughs) But we might look at this and go, Paul, what a crafty guy, well done. Kudos to you, man. But let us also remember the promise of Jesus to his disciples, right? But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. We are meant to recognize here that this is more than just Paul rummaging around in his bag of tricks. But God has fulfilled his spoken promise through Jesus. It is God who helps change the venue. And this brings us to our fifth and final point. The Lord will protect his faithful servants until his service is completed. Okay, we have a ton of verses here, so deep breath. Here we go. Ready? Verse 12. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. So religious of them. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they've killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Now I want to stop right here. Those of you who were here, especially this last week, I invite you, as you listen to this letter, See if you can pick up on a few discrepancies. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him for I had learned that he's a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, But there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought them as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked uh, what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered Paul to be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Okay, long passage. Thanks for hanging in there. We actually get the commander's name here, right? Claudius Lysias, or Lysias. And honestly, this guy, Claude, been a pretty good guy to Paul throughout this whole thing. In fact, many commentators sort of note the contrast, sort of the ironic contrast between the relative justice Paul has gotten under the Romans compared to the injustice and hostility that he's gotten from his Jewish countrymen here. But there are a couple observations about this letter that should bring kind of a smirk and a smile to our face, right? Good as Claudius has been to Paul, he's not a perfect commander, and you can't help but to notice how good Claudius makes himself out to be here in this whole process. If you didn't pick up on all of the discrepancies, let me highlight a few for you. First of all, Claudius arrests Paul, but how has he characterized it? Rescued Paul, okay. Second, he states the reason for this rescue Was that he had learned that Paul was a Roman citizen, which of course didn't happen till much later, right? So, this is a little bit of revisionist history, citing that this was the reason for the arrest. He also leaves off the whole bit about this mistaken identity, you know, thinking Paul was an Egyptian terrorist leader. No mention of that whatsoever. He also conveniently leaves off this, this bit about where, you know, he had him bound and had ordered flogging for Paul. No mention of this as well. And then one last thing, and this was not my own observation, but rather John Stott's, and I thought it was great. He says this, he observes that nine of the principal verbs in this short letter are in the first person. I, I, I. Someone's looking for a promotion, right? Someone is self-serving. And yet we can see upon inspection of this letter written to Felix, even though he manipulates the facts, that God is still at work, even with an ambitious and self-serving deceptive commander. We can see this from the whole story. Whether it's a hypocritical high priest, a conflicted Sanhedrin council that can't give justice, or a self-serving commander, all of these are ultimately instruments in the sovereign hand of God to move a faithful servant from region to region so that the gospel would go from region to region. And I think of how encouraging this this verse in, in verse 11 must have been for the Apostle Paul where it says, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem so you must testify about me in Rome. That was Paul's aspiration. It's just going to come through a little bit of a more indirect route. But what we see in all of this is that God was at work, or as I can say humorously, it was a God thing, right? It was a God thing the whole time, the whole time. So friends, I want to just bring this to a close here. Every person here regardless of where you work, your employment, your station, is called by Jesus Christ to be his ambassadors and his witnesses. That is the calling upon our lives. Where you work is not just the place you earn a wage. It is the place where God has put you for gospel influence, to be a witness for him. Your apartment, your dorm room, your cabin, Your home is not just a place to sleep and eat and rest. It is a place of situated influence for your neighbors. And I say that with difficulty even to myself because I'm in a tough spot right now with a neighbor. But as we go about the mission of God and serving as his witnesses, we are to be shrewd as snakes, innocent as doves, keeping a clear conscience, Submitting to God-ordained authority with the assurance we will be protected until we have completed our role in the mission of God. Or as the prophet Isaiah says, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. They trust in you. Let's pray. Lord, as we go through our lives, how quickly and easily we assign good and pleasant things to you as God things. We do see yet again, you are always at work. And those things which don't go as we wish they would, and those people whom we rub elbows with and rub shoulders against, who disappoint us, who do not seem to be of the kind of character that God would use, we remember you're shrewd, you're innocent, and you can use all these things as tools in your hand to carry out your purposes. So may we, Lord, be steadfast and keep our minds set upon you, for we do trust in you. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.